Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Munch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Glad to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies. What the Golden Globes lacks in diversity, it makes up for in corruption, according to a scathing expose in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, sure, the headline here is that the For Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is the group that puts on the Golden Globes every year, has no black members. Uh, though I, I can't imagine anyone who has paid any attention to the Globes is shocked by this fact, given the, by, given the nominees in any given year. Uh, the real corruption has to do with what can only be described as bribes given to members of the HFPA to support certain projects. Sure, and all expensive paid trip to France, resulting in a spate of nominations for the widely loathed Emily in Paris might look corrupt, but, um, sorry, I forgot where I was going with this. Uh, on top of all that, <laughs> the members of the HFPA are racking up huge payments from the HFPA, turning the nonprofit into a veritable cash cow for members. $2,300 a month on the, to be on the travel committee. $3,465 to two dozen members to watch some foreign films. Uh, these are substantial sums of money to struggling journalists, and that's not all of them. There were a whole bunch of these. Uh, such corruption is on is par for the course in the world of uh, the award season, though. I mean, Collider's Stephen Weintraub blithely tweeted out a gift basket he had received from Searchlight on behalf of Nomadland. And while it was fun to dunk on him and the studio for the tastelessness of sending journalistic... Uh, I'm sorry, sorry, of sending journalists pricey treats to celebrate a movie that is at least in part about homelessness and poverty, there's nothing particularly unusual about it. Uh, I myself receive enormous, huge, giant coffee table books from Netflix every year. And not wanting to throw them away, I just put them in my library and use them as decorations, so I appear learned and wise. Peter, what's the best bit of swag you've ever received? I mean... I I've gotten so little swag over the years. I, I really, I've actually turned down a lot. Um, but uh, when the first Transformers film came out in, I want to say 2007, um, I got uh, this great little box, not little box. It was a, it was like a, a double sized shoe box with a really big Optimus Prime toy that still sits uh, on my, on my window, um, on my windowsill. Uh, in my office next to like all of my childhood Star Trek and Star Wars toys. Um, and like, I like, I like Transformers. The, the toy didn't influence actually, no, the uh, only reason I liked that movie was because of the toy. I knew uh, it. I think I look, so Corruption. I, um, actually, th I mean, I, I do think that the, the gift swag situation deserves to be at least more transparent in some ways, right? Like, so you 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 have argued kind of, I think tongue in cheek, I'm not sure ever with you, Sonny, that like, that on the one hand, people shouldn't get swag, but if they get it, they should shut up about it. I actually think we should know. And this is the thing is like, it should be really clear what the studios are doing and what they're not doing and who's getting stuff that's worth uh, quite a bit. I was offered not too long ago um, a, a, a significant gift card to uh, get Uber Eats or something like it while watching a, a screener of a movie, right? And it is, you know, it, it doesn't come with any expectations attached, right? You don't, uh, you don't have to write a positive review of the film that they're, um, that they're pitching you. You don't have to do any of that sort of thing, um, right? You don't even have to necessarily comment on the film at all. You can just watch the movie and take the gift card and have a... a you know, a nice um, dinner in on the studio. But I kind of think that 
that you shouldn't do that sort of thing. And to the extent you can turn this stuff down, sometimes it just arrives in your box, you write in your yeah. mailbox and you, you're yeah. like, well, what? If there's no right. way to return it, right? But to the extent you can turn this stuff down, you should. Um, and to the extent that it's being sent to you and you're reviewing the films in general, you ought to try and let people know. And frankly, and not that studios are PR machines, they have no responsibility to, to be transparent about this stuff, no obligation. At the same time, it would be nice to know who is getting all of these rewards and that sort of thing. I, I just think it's, there's a weird kind of, um, there's a weird kind of uh, greasing of critical, of critical opinions and influence that goes on behind the scenes that I think a lot of people just don't know about. Well, and amazingly enough, I know some critics who post, you know, over the last year, I've been like posting the meals that they've been getting to watch with screeners on Facebook. So it's like, completely blithely it's like almost weird i mean i think part of what i find strange about the transparency is that there are at least some people who don't seem to understand that they're being bribed well i am sorry Alyssa. i want to i want to i want to highlight this point because it it, it 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 kind of is in resonance with something that peter mentioned earlier i i so i did tweet about this this collider guy uh you know hey you know you shouldn't do this uh, you shouldn't accept these things. And if you do, you definitely shouldn't brag about them. And I wasn't being tongue in cheek. I was just making the point that like, if you're if you're going to sit there and like take stuff from the studios, don't just be like, hey, look at look at all this stuff I got to tweet about Nomadland because it's it's like embarrassing. Yeah, it's not it, like it's just embarrassing. Right. Unless I mean, like you, you say, they're they, they're blithely unaware that they're being bribed. But that's it's what it is. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, I get various stuff that shows up at the house or at the office in the before times. Um, because I'm a member of the Television Critics Association, I get basically no movie swag in part um, because, you know, I'm a columnist. And so I guess I don't count as a reviewer in a way that people care about. Um, and a lot of it is just like, here's like at this point a fairly stale popcorn snack mix or here's a thing full of nuts that would kill you if you ate it um i will confess to keeping the coffee mugs uh in part because some of them are really the good. nuts are not actually poisonous to normal people just no, to no, people no. with nut allergies to yes. be clear they're not actually sending out bags full of murder nuts on purpose <laughs> yes um and that would be a whole different kind of screwed up that would actually I mean, make blumhouse would do well if they killed a critic or two with the murder nuts that would be kind of hilarious. Now I'm like, no, it wouldn't is, be. Murder is bad. But this is this is this is the assistant like part two, <laughs> the assistanting, <laughs> where an assistant starts killing off high-profile critics. Never mind. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, you know, the Washington Post, where I work, has a strict rule on accepting these things which means there's like there's a system for like giving away swag that like people buy at the end of the year and then the proceeds are given to charity um and the recognition is like you know it's it's embarrassing for companies to think that they can buy you off with like a bottle of booze or something like you you, you should have more self-worth than that i thought the la times piece about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association made the interesting point, though, that some of the reason this has happened is because the overseas, um, you know, film press has been really financially, you know, devastated. And I think that's true in the U.S. too. I think a lot of the people who are getting these swag things are freelancers um, who, frankly, in some cases, could like they accept the stuff because they need the money or because it's like a way to get a nice dinner, and that's. You know, that's sort of a sad statement on 
the state of film journalism and criticism, but it doesn't make it not corrupt. Yeah, I mean, there, there, we we should, you know, there, there's a, there's a difference here, I think, between uh, a critic getting a print or a giant Transformers figure or whatever, um, and and what we're seeing with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is kind of a more rigorous and institutionalized form of bribery, like like actual people are actually getting money from the HFPA, and the way they raise that money is by you know selling selling TV rights and all that, right? And so there are there are, there there are uh, you know I, I again it, the 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 Emily in Paris thing is like kind of the most shocking one because everyone was like, how did this movie get nominated for or how did this TV show get nominated for anything at the Golden Globes? And it turns out well there was a, a big junket to uh to to Paris to to see the movie and of course the movie or the show ends because I keep calling it a movie because I haven't watched it because I would never watch it because it looks terrible and yet here it is Golden Globe nominee um I, but the 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 problem here you know is that again there is there is no institutionalized norm that that critics have that say we cannot accept money or goods or whatever um, from these organizations. I just I find it all I find it all very unseemly. Like I, I don't mean I don't want to go full gamergate here, but it really is about ethics in, in film criticism and, and and it's it's bad. It makes us it makes us all look bad. So yeah, Alyssa mentioned something that I think is just worth highlighting, which is you work for the Washington Post. Um, and the post has ethics rules. And part of what is happening here is that Studios are exploiting is probably too strong a word, but making use of the fact that a lot of critics are now online working for relatively new, relatively small startup publications uh, that aren't that don't have a kind of legacy of of like of journalistic ethics that they adhere to, right? That and even if they've been around for ten years or something, and even if they have pretty wide reach on the internet and get really quite well read, a lot of these places are just sort of like they assume that. Everybody who's going to be writing about this stuff is going to be getting swag as part of the job. Um, and I think that that is sort of what's destructive here is just that there's that there's there are all of these kind of it's not that I'm against startup critics on the Internet, people blogging, people writing on Substack, people writing on, you know, on what are you building their own websites and, and getting readers. That's great. I think independent journalism is is wonderful um, and we need more of it, frankly. But when it is built on this sort of model where part of the compensation implicitly is that you just sort of are constantly showered and like in swag and not just swag trrips we haven't we don't have these trips happening this year obviously although but it's interesting a that the bunch in of Paris junkets, one right must have happened yeah during the pandemic I, I I don't know for certain but like certainly in pre-pandemic, yeah. the the junket business and the junket traffic right you weren't being given a, a, an object you were just being flown to los angeles yeah. to see a movie and talk with the stars and like yeah. ho, you know hobnob with the people who made stuff and like get to see the cool cars from the set and like yeah. all of this was it's funded a... by the studios in a way that is not like some places would disclose it but it would be not necessarily transparent at all to to readers and it's worth saying that i think it is in hollywood's interest not to have a strongly respected independent body of critics who are taken seriously, right? Like the long-term goal here is obviously to turn critics into sort of adjuncts of the studio publicity machines. Um, and so 
you know, <laughs> doing something like this both makes critics sort of potentially beholden to the studios and undermines the idea that critics are doing sort of serious independent journalism. And so, you know, this is something, this is a form of corruption that works for the studios, not just in the sense that they get good reviews or, you know, Golden Globe nominations for Emily in Paris, but a sort of gutted body of independent observers who have any power over their stuff. Yeah, I mean, I like the the uh, Peter mentions the trips and, and and the you know the big one that nobody nobody really likes to talk about are the superhero movies, the you know the Marvel movies in particular. The reason you you see all these stories on you know the 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 fan sites and the nerd blogs and stuff about well, oh here's some footage from my exclusive set visit to you know but is because they want all they want all of the the nerd blogs to be cheering the release of this new movie and they want to have even even if it's just implicit and not explicit they want to have a check on the reviews because if you, i guarantee you if you're out there savaging you know uh captain marvel or uh, avengers endgame or whatever your your leash is going to be pretty short on the next uh, the next junket to, you know, Hawaii to talk to uh, Robert Downey Jr. for five minutes while his minders tap their their watch and say, come on, we're going to we, we got to get a move on here. So I, um, I know your fave, Sonny, uh, hosted a whole bunch of like bloggery journal sort of movie journal types for um, uh, for dawn of justice i think it was or maybe yeah it was not justice league it was um superman versus batman right and there was this like wave of coverage in which everybody had the same photo of themselves sitting in front of the new batmobile or in mm -hmm. one of the in the bat cave or whatever and a few of the folks were like yeah they paid for me to fly to london like this was all on yeah. the studio dime I mean, like there were some descriptions of it that i thought were like okay this is like you're getting access to something that is actually valuable to your readers, and I, I like, I don't think it's you should necessarily turn is this it, out. I, I'm sorry. Is it yeah. I, is it is a backstage visit to to so, uh, so Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice? I think even actually the, useful for. The, I will no, actually no, defend I, this. Wait, let me let me finish because because I don't think it's actually useful for the readers in any sense of the imagination. What what good is this doing them? It, what it is is publicity for the studio. It's clicks for the website. What is the what does the reader actually get about this? They already know that the movie is coming. They like, I I, I don't I don't I don't see what the value added here is. I mean, I think it's clear that there is reader interest in seeing um, and hearing about the production and the design aspects and some of the stories that come out of this sort of thing. Um, and I also think that there is journalistic value in having contact with the actual players who are making the movie. Um, even if it, and if this is the only way you can do it in the same way that while it's, it's like, it would be very bad if journalists, if political journalists were constantly just taking really fancy gift baskets from senators. But a thing that happens is that outside groups will sponsor dinners, right? And so a nonprofit will, will say, set up a dinner with a senator and a bunch of journalists from a, a number of different outlets. And then and right and, and nobody's paying i mean the the outside group is paying for that dinner and you get to go and you get to grill the senator and you get some close up access in a way that you might not get otherwise and that is that creates value for your coverage and for your publication and there's right and so again you know this sort of thing is um 
I, I think it's a little more complicated, maybe even than than we're making it here. At the same time, I don't love the, <laughs> I, I don't love the. I, I got the organic uh, carrots basket for Nomadland. Like yeah. that's not that's not my favorite promotion. Yeah, I, and that one I think stood out to people because it was so sort of tasteless and off message. Um, but all of this stuff is bad, and it's corrosive for film journalism. Um, I mean, the answer to this is you know, better jobs or clearer career paths for critics, not everyone living off swag. I guess we should also uh, probably just say, like, all of us have seen a lot of movies for free. And yeah. that's, it, you know, well, pretty clear. Well, and this is, a, but this is, again, sort of what I'm saying is different is like, you, you to some extent, yeah. you are at the mercy of, like, to, to sometimes the only way to get the access you need to write about the film, right, which is, or or write about the making of the film is to do so with studio guidance and minders. But yeah. you gotta be well, clear about how that is happening and about the transaction that's going on there. Right, right. And I mean, like I, these these totally unrelated gifts are what really bother me. Yes, right. I mean, this is so this is the thing, right? Is that like critics get to go to press screenings, right? And sometimes those are open to members of the public and sometimes they're not. Uh, critics, uh, at least in the critics groups, get screener DVDs at the end of the year for award season, right? And like, okay, you need you need to get the movie so you can watch the movie so you can decide whether or not you want to include it. Fine. Sometimes you get a screenplay, right? Okay, well, you need the screenplay to read the screenplay to see if you want to put it in best screenplay or not, right? But then it get there's like an escalating series of these things. Like, uh, you know, well, okay, what about the hardcover art book? Well, that, well, surely you need to see what the production design was like, right? You know, what about the... Uh, what about the the soundtrack CD? Well, you want to listen to the soundtrack, et cetera, et cetera. I just like, again, I I like there there are a lot of things that you can you can excuse. I would say that uh, you know um, anything that is not anything that does not actually contribute to uh, your your understanding of the picture to vote on in whatever categories is probably beyond the pale. All right, uh, what do we think? Is is the habit of giving journos bags of swag during award season a controversy or an controversy? Alyssa? It's a controversy. Peter? Controversy, but a little more complicated than that sounds. Uh, no, it's definitely a controversy, and this has to stop, as the Supreme Court is fond of saying. It's not necessarily necessarily corruption, but the appearance of corruption that is the issue. Uh, and as Peter says, you know, like, imagine if political reporters were just getting bags of goodies from senators. We'd all be pissed off, and we'd be right to be pissed off. Um, so, yeah, controversy. If you enjoyed this show, which is not controversial, it's very, it's hard-hitting ethics in film criticism work, uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about the return of Brett Ratner who had been exiled from Hollywood's good graces for his behavior with women. Is Me Too over? Now, on to the main event. Nomadland, this year's award season darling, is available on Hulu now. If you can't make it to an IMAX screen to enjoy the wide western vistas shot by director Chloe Zhao and cinematographer Joshua James Richards, Nomadland follows Fern, played by Frances McDormand, as she sets out on a nomadic life uh, following the collapse of a gypsum plant in Nevada, uh, and the resultant death of the town in which it was located, she is living out of a van and doing odd jobs in order to stay afloat. She travels where the work is, to an Amazon fulfillment center during the holiday season, uh, at rock stands and burger joints elsewhere as the year goes on, and takes in the beauty of the country. The beauty of the country is very much 
part of the point of this film. Um, Zhao and Richards uh, seem to have worked mostly during the golden hour, framing the faces of their subjects with a sort of pinkish-purplish hue, a sheen provided by the sun, the sky, and the clouds. This is God's country. Uh, But there are some who believe this is a movie about people who have been abandoned by God, left to the vicissitudes and the predations of capitalism. Uh, I would argue that it is to Zhao's credit that this movie is not a didactic exercise in the evils of the neoliberal order. Vern is happy in the Amazon warehouse, or at least as happy as one can be in a kind of meaningless, meaningless, mindless labor, uh, making friends and making money. Indeed, she is distraught when the need for her labor ends. She's a person who wants to work. She finds working uh, useful. She finds meaning in it. Um, And there are people who live this life by choice, packing their worlds into a van and traveling the highways and the byways in order to see the country and live untethered from property and land. My friend Chris Moody, uh, formerly of Vice, is one such. Uh, And his piece in Outside Magazine about this movie is a must-read to understand the difference between those who choose this life and those who have this life thrust upon them. Uh, A subtle critique of the tenuousness of capitalism is, by necessity, baked into every fiber of this film. When Fern can't afford to repair her van, she's forced to take a bus to a relative's house to get cash to fix it, and endure a lecture about her lifestyle, just to get back on a bus to get back and get her van again. Um, It's... it's a complex movie, and that's what I like about it. It doesn't hold your hand and tell you what you need to think. Um, I don't know that the whole thing works, but I think that specific part of it, the political part of it, is actually quite good. Uh, Alyssa, what did you make of Nomadland? Well, since we've just had a discussion about ethics in uh, film criticism, um, and we're talking about the sort of Amazon subplot of Nomadland, it's worth disclosing that all three of us are in the pay of Dark Lord Jeff Bezos. Um, I obviously work at the Post, which he owns. Uh, Peter's wife works with me in the opinion section, and uh, Sonny is a a contributing columnist to the Post opinion section. So none of us, our hands are not clean. Take Um, take all of take everything that comes next with a grain of salt. (laughs) In other words, Um, but I I loved this movie, Um, and I think that the folks who want it to be a sort of miserable, you know, didactic look at the evils of capitalism and seasonal employment um, are sort of missing something. And I think that one thing I've been thinking about a lot over the past year is um, an argument that conservatives have made and that I think liberals have kind of shoved off, shoved, shrugged off to a certain extent, which is that you know, it actually is good pe- for people to work and to be connected to institutions. Um, and that, you know, the pandemic has taken a lot of that away from people. It's taken church. It's taken, you know, like your bowling league, if you had one. It's taken, you know, your kids' little league games where you could hang out with people in the stands. Um, it For a lot of Americans, it has taken their ability to have a job at all or their ability to go to a workplace where they find meaning. Um, In and particular I think it, for low-income workers, the, yes. the class of people who who have been hit hardest job-wise are uh, relatively young, relatively low-skilled workers making less than $50,000 a year. And it seems likely that their jobs will be the slowest to come back if they come back at all. Um, and I think liberals have, to a certain extent, underestimated the importance of those ties. Um, you know, there, it, the idea of a universal basic income um, has gained a lot of credence on the left. Um, you know, Ezra Klein had an interesting column about sort of whether work is actually dignified and whether that's something that Americans tend to fetishize. And I think that, 
Nomadland is a movie that kind of pushes back against that assumption. Um, there is real dignity in having a job, even if it's, jo- it's a job that's difficult, even if it's a job that, you know, is not particularly intellectually stimulating or dramatic. Um, there is, you know, sort of real importance and dignity to, you know, be making sure you have that $2,300 on hand if your van breaks down. Um, and being cut adrift, um, is not a great thing, right? I mean, there's a reason that part of Fern's arc in the movie is you know, be, going from being someone who is relatively rootless, literally. I mean, her community has disappeared. Her husband has died. And she's initially someone who sort of rejects the idea that she's going to belong in this community of people who live in their vans and work seasonally. She's reluctant to go to this gathering. Um, but she ends up finding this community that even as it's in flux and far flung is, you know, durable and creative and interesting and has a lot to offer her. Um, and I think, you know, this is, this is a movie that is not neatly partisan, but it does the political work that I think art can do best, which is say something that doesn't fit neatly into the partisan divide. It's not a movie about how Amazon and its warehouses are evil. Um, you know, and it's Amazon, like, let, let them into the warehouses to film in part because they just uh, adopted a $15 minimum wage. Like, Amazon does, you know, is running a game here. But it's not a movie about how Amazon is neatly evil. It's not a movie about how gig work is good. Um, it's not a movie about that just sort of neatly valorizes Fern as, like, a free spirit. Um, it makes pretty clear that a lot of the people who have, you know, who are in her path, um, you know, either this is not necessarily the retirement they would have chosen, but they're making something interesting out of it, or, you know, they are adrift in some way and need to be rooted. Um, but it's much more interesting for not being neat. And it's, it, it advances a lot of ideas that are just not particularly part of the mainstream political conversation. But that doesn't make it not political. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the choice to use a lot of uh, real people in this movie as opposed to uh, simply simply having actors? I mean, there are actors, of yeah. course. But I mean, so in some ways, are... this is uh, unusual in that it is um, more so than Chloe Zhao's previous films. Um, this actually is a little bit more structured and has a, a little more of a kind of clearly directed narrative with a uh, two well-known professional actors at the center of it. And if you've seen um, Songs My Brothers Taught Me or The Writer, they make even heavier use of um, of what she is calling first-time actors, first-time performers, people who don't have any background in acting and probably in most cases will not end up acting again. Um, I found it kind of fascinating. And uh, I, I, I thought that part of the movie's excellence came from the way that she used those people because she was using real people i think she, she felt obligated in some sense to be decent to them in a way that you sometimes don't see in movies certainly movies with uh, about um with this sort of subject matter and i just i just found this film profoundly moving in a way that it's, it's almost hard to explain and i rarely find myself sort of just searching for words to say how much I love to film in it. But I, I am, that's, that's how I feel after, after watching this and just thinking about it. And I can't wait to go back and watch this again and again. Um, Alyssa did talked, I, I think, you know, uh, 
said a lot, um, and I, I largely agree with what Alyssa said about sort of the movie's social and political context. But what actually, you know, sort of the other thing that stuck out to me and what I think is notable is the movie's, um, it's moviness, for lack of, of of better word, right? In some ways, this sort of feels just like a kind of a documentary. It feels really raw. It feels, you know, it's it's um, it's shot in golden hour, but it's not one of these sort of big, heavily produced films uh, like her next film, a, a Marvel movie, Eternals, right? Which is going to be, you know, a hundred and fifty million dollar uh, Angelina Jolie film. Um, and yet, this movie is so deeply in conversation with with a hundred years of Hollywood and in particular with the Western and with the myth of the, of the West that was created in the Western. And also the way that the myth of the West has just sort of seeped into American character and the ways that it sort of, on the one hand suggests, you know, boundless personal freedom. And also when you get there feels real empty. And I just loved looking at this movie in a way that I, I, I just almost can't describe. I just, I just was overcome by it, and and it is uh, the literally the only thing that annoyed me about this movie is that it is a 2021 film that we're supposed to treat as a 2020 movie, and that's it. It's like if this is this absolutely would have been far and away the best thing I saw in 2020 if I'd seen it last year. Um, and I, I am, I'm heartened actually by the fact that it appears to be leading the uh, the best picture category for you know or the uh it's not the it's not been nominated yet but it appears to be leading um in the sort of uh stakes for the best picture for oscars yeah no i i am with you on the, just a sort of physical beauty of um of the movie and i think it's you know especially after watching it you know after a, almost exactly a year in my house um really i i grew up i don't know if you guys did this too but i grew up going to a lot of national parks as a kid um and spending a lot of time in the american southwest with my parents in particular and man it's just a reminder of how physically gorgeous america is also Um, how how great uh it like how wonderful it is to see a camera pick up real things in the real world yeah. Right. And so blockbusters these days are are just so heavily uh, green screened products. Right. Or built or on sets. Right. And there is, I'm pretty sure, not a single shot in this movie that isn't in a real place. Right. So some of the sets were clearly dressed. There's somebody was there's a, a credit for like a, a set decorator or set costumer or, or something like that. But these places are they look like real places. And yet they're not. They somehow or another, she just captures something in them that's that's beyond real, right? That's sort of yep. like she's she's both saying this is the, this is real. It's ordinary. Sometimes in certain ways, it's ugly, but in its in its sort of ordinary ugliness, right? Trailer parks and and uh, places just filled with trash, honestly, on on the grounds. No, there is something really deeply beautiful about them, and I just I I was just moved beyond words by this film. And I still am thinking about it. Hmm. I uh, I I will say that the the my my complaint my big complaint about this movie is that I do I do think that it is uh, a character study in the kind of worst sense of the word, which is that it is it is slightly plotless, it is slightly meandering. It's not. Uh, it, it it has kind of a. The 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 filmmaker who comes to mind, the two filmmakers who come to mind when I when I was watching this, uh, the first was 
uh, Terrence Malick, of course, because mm-hmm. of the obsession with the the Golden Hour. But also, there's a little bit of Antonioni in here, just kind of the ennui of the open road and the you know the the aimlessness of it all. Which uh, I I need I need more stuff to happen, uh, which which sounds a little bit pedestrian, um, but I, I do kind of need like an actual uh, uh, arc that is more than just you know we're out here on the road, we're doing our thing. That's and then then we're gonna come back and then it's it's now we're gonna stay on the road and then that's but the that's arc it. is that uh, she's so, trying to figure out what her arc is gonna be. The arc right, is that she is lo- is that she is looking <laughs> for purpose, and yeah. and it is this is a movie about the search for meaning in life, and the sure. way that that meaning is meaning can be found, but it's always illusory and it's always in it's in this weird combination of choice. And circumstance that is thrust mm. upon you, and community, right? And when you right. and, and when those three, the and meaning comes from those three things, um, and you, yet never quite, you never quite find it, right? Yeah, that's yeah. okay, Sunny. We know you have no soul. <laughs> as I said, uh, as I said, it reminds me of Antonioni. Those are it's you basically described La Ventura. That's fine. Um, I it's it. I, I don't know. It it like I like this movie a lot, and I like. I like it more because I find the conversation around it so dumb, as, as weird as that is to sa- say, and as weird as that sounds. Like I, I like it's a very like sunny fact, bunch. I like the fact that say. that that like dumb people are flummoxed by this movie in a way that you know, gets them to commit to their dumbness. Like if your if your main response to this film is like, well, it should have been it should have been more condemnatory of the things I hate. Um, and you can't actually see the con the condemnation of the things that you hate within the movie. You're you're really you're telling on yourself, as the kids say. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, so Alyssa, you 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 said you love the the kind of natural beauty of the 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 West and all that. Where what did this did this call to mind uh childhood trips for you? Was this a yeah absolutely? Was this a like uh I mean obviously your folks weren't like going from Amazon warehouse to Amazon warehouse. <laughs> yes, but, like... no, no, no. We were we were flying into various places and going hiking. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that as a kid, there's something very interesting about going to the west especially if you grew up in new england as i did um because you just feel so small in a way that the landscape of um of new england never really does for you i mean you know the green mountains are mountains but there's just something very different about going and hiking the tetons or even you like hiking down into canyon de Chelly, or you know just driving through monument valley and being like you know you you get a sense of your littleness as a kid in those spaces and it's you know it can be kind of scary but it's also amazing i mean just seeing that the world is weirder and more variegated and harsher than anything you've experienced um i think is a really remarkable experience um and something i'm looking forward to doing as a parent myself um it's just, and I think, but I think that's true sort of no matter where you grow up, going someplace else and just seeing a totally different sky and landscape is a really profound experience. Um, and I thought the movie captured that really well. I mean, that, you know, the scene in the National Park where, you know, Fern and Dave are sort of flirting over the tour, but they're also doing it in this totally alien landscape. So you're having this incredibly sort of human, gentle even tentative experience in this It's like raw, a set for the Eternals. Yeah, this raw, <laughs> racked rock formation. Um, yeah. 
it's just, you know, we're small and vulnerable even when we're not living in pans. And I think that's some of the appeal of Western storytelling. I mean, it's very interesting to me that, you know, Zhao is a you know Chinese-born director um, and a Chinese-born director from a background of, you know, fairly considerable privilege who has come to the U.S. and gotten really interested in um, Western landscapes and the people who occupy them. Um, and in a way, the movie that this made me think of a little bit was, um, was Crushing Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, which has its wonderful sort of backstory set in... China's Western provinces, um, and is about is also a movie that's sort of about testing yourself and finding who you are in the desert and finding that you are sort of gentler and more willing to accept help and community than you had expected. And I think that's why, you know, that's part of the reason that American Westerns, you know, were incredibly interesting to directors in Italy and now in China. Um, you know, there is something universal about kind of testing yourself against that kind of landscape and feeling your smallness um, and learning to be at peace with that smallness and not afraid of it. Um, I mean, I and... think part of the reason that all of that works so well is Francis McDormand, who is the the vehicle through which we see and experience that world. And she's just... She's just a marvel, right? Like, and it's so strange to have been watching her now, like for like 25 years, 30 years, right? I mean, like in Coen Brothers films and, you know, sort of eventually in other stuff and just see this, to just see her like kind of act circles around everyone in Hollywood for two and a half, three decades, whatever it is. I mean, I, she, I, I don't I don't remember what her first credit is. Uh, the first time I uh, encountered her was in Fargo, you know, in the 1990s. Yeah. Um, uh, but just to just to see how good she is and how good she still is, maybe even better. Right. Um, it's it's just kind of amazing. I uh, you, you mentioned um, Crouching Tiger, Alyssa. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually want to ask both of you. Um, it almost struck me that this movie is directed. She's. Zhao's shooting the American West like China, right? And if you if you sort of think of the way that uh, when you see kind of natural wonder in um, in Chinese films, you see right, it's always these sort of big sweeping mountains and like vast landscapes, but like a lot of transitional stuff too, right? Where you'll see you know snow caps and deserts kind of right next to each other, and this stuff right in this sort of there's this this mythic sensibility about it that is great. Like it's just visually stunning, right? Um, that is part of, you know, the language of, of Chinese cinema and like somehow or another in these, in this like relatively low budget, almost cinema verite kind of way, she is bringing that, that eye for landscape to the American West in a way that I just find incredibly powerful. I want to loop back to what you said about McDormand because, I mean, the range of what she can do is so extraordinary, right? I mean, in the Coen Brothers movies and in Wes Anderson films, she often plays these sort of exaggerated, mannered characters, and she's so hypernatural here. But her career is also a testament just to the value of having actors who look like human beings yeah. instead of like people who were 3D printed to meet, you know, very normative standards of beauty. Like Speaking of, of Angelina Jolie. <sighs> Who I mean, is a great of... actress, but like yes. I have been in a room with her and she appears to be an alien. She does. She seems in, if you are physically four feet from her, she 
seems as if she is computer generated. Yeah. And I just, I mean, the virtue of having actors who look like actual human beings is considerable. Um, and you could not do this movie. Like, there is no world in which, like, Michelle Pfeiffer does this movie and it works at all, right? Like, you know, actress of roughly similar age and, like, Who's interesting a great breath. actress. It's yes, not because, great it's actress. It's not because she's a like, bad actress. No, it's not because, at all. Hey, to go back to, a, like, an old theme of ours, casting yeah, are you choices. Saying it matters? Casting it matters choices what matter. sort of person is cast in a movie? Yeah, yes. I don't know. It's weird, huh? It's weird how that, that happens to... To be the case. I mean, obviously, Margot Robbie would have been better as Fern. <laughs> uh, you know, just because she's so much hotter than Frances McDormand. But, you know, I guess we'll have to make do. We'll have to make do with Frances McDormand here. Um, no, I, like, I. she's obviously great. And, like, I, uh, it's funny. I, I, I watched this movie, I don't know, a month or two ago um, as I was prepping for the Washington Area Film Critics uh, Awards. And then I, I, I didn't I didn't love it. And I still don't love it. But I do actually kind of love Frances McDormand's performance in this movie now more than I did uh, a month ago. I, I think it really is. I think it actually is just about perfect. Um, and she will she will handsomely deserve whatever award she gets from whoever decides to give them to her. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Nomadland? Thumbs up. And then as soon as you can travel somewhere, just go to one of the many awesome national parks in the American West, you will be so happy. The biggest possible thumbs up. And I am just so excited to see Chloe Zhao's career. Like I'm, I'm so stoked for 30 years of her movies, even if they're all Marvel films. Well, they're going to be Marvel films. And I think she's working on a, a Blumhouse Universal Monsters movie next, isn't she? I, I think I read that somewhere. Uh, thumbs up on Nomadland. Good movie. Um, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about the attempted rehabilitation of Brett Ratner at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>